All right, I think we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and get started just after 9 o'clock. Thank you all for, uh, for being here this morning. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you being here, especially after a couple of weeks of no class. We obviously took a break around Thanksgiving, and then unfortunately Ben Cunningham was sick last week. He really wanted to be able to sort of wrap up uh, his portion of uh, Truly Human and where he was going in class 9. That was not uh, obviously able to happen. But he does hope to pick some of this stuff up in the future, trying to figure out what that might look like uh, going forward. But today is our final day of class, and we're going to wrap up what it means to be truly human. We would be remiss if we didn't, in understanding what it means to be truly human, look at the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did and what it means that God was made flesh And so this morning we're going to talk about that, and it fits really well to the season and the time of the year. So for those of you, uh, I know most of you, but for those of you who maybe I don't know as well, my name is Matthew Jensen. I'm excited to be able to be here this morning and share uh, a little something out of God's Word. First question, are you you turned on? Good to go. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us and caring for us. Thank you, Lord, for, for having a plan that was laid out long before the foundations of creation were set, Lord. All of this, everything we encounter, everything that happens on this earth is part of your plan, Lord. Nothing is a surprise to you. And Lord, knowing what you know and your full knowledge and understanding, you did it all anyway. And for that, we are grateful. And we know that you did that because you care about us and you love us, that you want to be in relationship with us. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for what we can learn about him. Open our eyes and our minds and our hearts this morning to catch just another glimpse of of who you are, what you did, and how much you care about us, Lord, for your glory. Amen. We started out in this class several months ago talking about the image of God and Ben Cunningham talked about how we are created as human beings in the image of God, that we are created to reflect the Lord, that we are created to represent God, that we are created to relate to God, that in the image of God, we are also embodied creatures. What that means to have a physical body to have physical limitations, what that does to, in helping us and what that does in hindering us and how those things are good and can be bad. We also talked about how created in God's image, yet we are marred with sin, right? Way back in the garden, Adam and Eve, we talked about that early on in the class, chose to be disobedient. And because of that disobedient, sin entered the world, the charge that they were given to God to go out into all the earth, to multiply, to subdue the earth and rule over it, although that was still there, now with the introduction of sin, God's purpose still remains, but the way that was carried out and how that would happen in the world was now tainted with the sin that we carried through being related to Adam and Eve from the garden. We also talked about how in the image of God we are created male and female and what that means and how our culture and our society takes and tries to change what that means or or give us a different picture of what that's supposed to look like that might 
shed different light than what God's Word says and how that we as Christians can relate to our world and our culture as it tries to promote uh, sin as being what's acceptable and what's right. All of those things span nine weeks of class and several months. And so this morning we're going to uh, land on what it means that Christ became fully human. And I don't know about you all, but oftentimes when I think about Jesus and reading the scriptures or I'm considering who he is, I tend to focus on the deity of Christ, right? The explaining to people or helping understand that, that Christ, that Jesus who lived on the earth wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet sent. He wasn't one of many that represent God and religion, so to speak, but that there's something special and different about him. So for me personally, and I don't know about you, but I tend to focus on his deity, that he was and is God, and what that means and what the implications are. But as I was preparing for this and looking at what it also means that he was is human and what his humanity means, I don't know, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, I tend to focus on the deity part and, and leave off the significance of his humanity. And realizing again the fact that of equal importance is that Jesus was and is a man. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. I'm going to start out in the book of John, John chapter 1. You're familiar with this passage. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, or the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. We talked about how we are made in God's image early on in the class. Today, I'm here to share with you the fact of what you already know, that Jesus is the image of God. He is the exact representation of who God is, made flesh. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We are made in God's image, right? We reflect God's image. Jesus is the very image of God. If we want to know what the image of God in man is really like, we must first look at Christ. In Christ, we see clearly what is hidden in Genesis 1, namely that man is the perfect, what man is the perfect image of God should be like, right? What God's plan was in the garden for Adam and Eve prior to sin was that they should live a life of dependence 
on him, being made in his image, reflecting his image, relating to him in the garden. Of course, sin changed that. And Jesus, when he came on earth, he is the exact image or representation of God. He, on this earth, reflected God. He would tell his people around him, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. Right? If you want to know God, look at me. Look at Jesus, who he was and who he did. John 14, Jesus says, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he has provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. William MacDonald says, the Lord Jesus is the exact image of God's essential being. This cannot, of course, refer to physical likeness because God is, in essence, a spirit. It means that in every conceivable way, Christ exactly represents the Father. No closer resemblance could be possible. The Son, being God, reveals to man by his words and ways exactly what God is like. In other words, the truth of Christ's humanity is as significant for the gospel as the salvation, for salvation as the truth of his deity. So we'd like to start by looking at the virgin birth. Most of you know this story already. This is obviously the way that God chose to present his son to the world through the virgin birth. And we know the story. We're talking about it here at Christmas time. You'll probably hear about it in the sermon today. But this is a story that didn't start in the New Testament book of Matthew. This is a story that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis, right? Remember Adam and Eve's sin. And because there was sin, there was consequence for their sin. It broke their relationship with God. There was a problem now because there was a separation. Sin separates us just like it separated Adam and Eve from God. And because of their sin, that sin gets passed along generation to generation to generation. We cannot escape it. David in Psalm 51, you know, even from the moment that I was conceived In my mother, there was sin within me. So we have this sin problem in the garden, but you know that along with the curse, there's a promise that was made that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent. God says, in between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you shall strike his heel. So God has a plan. It wasn't something that started in Matthew as a, oh, I figured out how to solve this. It started way back when, even in the garden. It would pass along to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham that when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'm sorry, Genesis says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. To David, he makes the same promise. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. The promise that God made in the garden in the beginning to Adam and Eve now gets passed along to Abraham and his descendants. It goes through David and his line. It's part of God's plan from the beginning of this book all the way to the end of the book that this is how he would rescue us. This is how he would seek to restore what was broken in the garden. Galatians 3.16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. 
Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise in the garden and is the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham and then to David through the prophets, ultimately to us. Christ is the fulfillment of that and has its culmination in Jesus. William MacDonald says, God was manifested in the flesh referring to the Lord Jesus and particularly to his incarnation. True godliness was manifest in the flesh for the first time when the Savior was born as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. Right? And you all know the story. An angel appears to Mary. <clears throat> this is how the birth of Christ in Matthew 1.18 came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Matthew continues to say, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This was going to be a babe. This was going to be a baby that was unlike any other that had ever been born before because every child up to this point, separate from Adam and Eve, who were created directly by God, had a father and a mother. We all have a father and we all have a mother. In the case of Jesus, God interrupts this a little bit in the fact that it says that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. Therefore, Jesus obviously did not have an earthly father. And in doing so, somehow there was this interruption of this passing along of sin from the person to person and generation to generation. Now, I'm not going to give you answers up here today <laughs> on exactly how God does this work and how it happens. But somewhere along the way, there was this interruption and it happened. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that sin is passed along through the father, that the mothers are okay and that, that it's us guys that pass along. Although Adam was responsible, right? Ultimately in the garden and throughout this. But this is the method that God, excuse me, that God chose to sort of interrupt this line and do something different. And we're going to talk a little bit later about why was Jesus' humanity or Christ's humanity necessary to us and why is that important? Right, important. right now we're just setting the groundwork for, for what that is and, and why, how it happened, I guess, so to speak, as far as we know. And I tell you what, this is by no means going to be an exhaustive class on what it means that Christ is human and what his humanity would be. You could spend weeks and countless hours in class of itself talking about this. My hope this morning is that this sort of scratches the surface in such a way that it renews us in this time and in this season to look to the Lord and to seek him and to understand maybe afresh what it means that God became man and dwelt among us. I also think about the possibility of what other way could God have done this? I don't know if you ever sit and think about, well, if it hadn't worked this way, what other way? Because like, in some ways it couldn't have happened any other way, right? Scripture makes it clear that it's the way it is for a reason. I mean, God could have created Jesus in heaven and just put the 30-year-old Jesus on earth, start his ministry. He didn't. He could have had two human parents that then at some point the Spirit of God rested and something changed. God chose not to do that. In his perfect knowledge and perfect understanding, God chose it to be this way for a certain reason, the virgin birth. God in his wisdom 
ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Luke 2 says, While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Jesus was born a baby. Jesus was born human and entered the world at Christmas time. What does it mean that Jesus is truly human? I'm going to need your help a little bit. We have some passages and some scripture references on your handout in front of you for those who have it. If you'll look under truly human, if there's somebody who would uh, look up Luke 2.40. I'm going to try to hit all of these, if we ca- or several of these if we can. Somebody look up 2.40. Thank you. In the back, John 4, 6. How about John 19, 28? John 19, 28. Matthew 4, 2. Luke 23, 26. Thank you. And, and we'll do one more here. Luke 23, 46. Somebody look up Luke 23, 46. Thanks. Ben, earlier in our class, talked a little bit about the limitations of what it means to be human, what, what we get to enjoy and understanding living as flesh and bone, right? We're going to talk now about how Jesus experienced and understands these same things. So if somebody could read uh, Luke 2.40. Luke 2.40, the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom and God's grace was on him. And Luke 2.52 continues and says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So it's interesting as you read some of this and study some of this after our first scripture, right? What does it mean that Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, grew in wisdom and in stature? Any ideas? God is creator. He is divine. He is all-knowing, all-perfect, ever-existing. Yet here, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Well, one thing he had to deal with living in a human in human flesh. Mm-hmm. So, I guess he was both at the same time. So, part of him need to learn some stuff. Okay. So, he was both at the same time. So, in that process, he learned some things even though he knew it all. Yeah, yeah it's kind of mind-blowing. Like in Philippians 2, it says he had to empty himself, right? Mm-hmm. God, so yeah. he was still God, but he set aside the prerogative as God. But what's interesting in Isaiah 7, if you tie the child in Isaiah 7, it says before he knew enough to, to know good from wrong, and he was still eating curds and whey or whatever, you know, so it's this idea, or in Hebrews, I think we're, we're going to get to in a minute, right? It's this idea that he had to learn Right? Or he didn't even know when the second coming was going to happen. Certain things as a human, and even as a child, it, he, he had to learn, it for, even though he's God. Right? It's mysterious. It is, for sure. Yes, Marilyn. Surely he, being human, like all you know, human babies we watch, 
he was restricted, you know. When he was born, he couldn't pop out of that manger and go start healing people. He <laughs> underwent the normal developmental tasks of childhood, and so somebody held his hands while he learned to walk. Somebody, you know, put him on their shoulders so he could see, um, you know, he was restricted like we are. And I think in Hebrews when it talks about that he... He knows how it feels to be human. Well, if he if he didn't go through that, he wouldn't know those the restrictions we feel all our lives. Absolutely, yes, Jerry. Yeah, and <coughs> several places Jesus states that he only knows what the Father reveals to him. Mm-hmm. And so I think Jerry Brashears, when he did a seminar here, he used the analogy of he left his God card in heaven. Not that he wasn't God, but his everything that that he knew and, and his powers and only he he submitted himself to only what God the Father allowed him to do. So just to, I'm not saying that's the way it is. It's just that how he presented it. It's how he viewed it. Yes. Thank you. Yes. I don't think Jesus needed to be in human flesh to experience what we experience because he's God, so he knows what it'd be like anyway. But it's maybe for our benefit in that way as opposed to his understanding. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more, so hang on to it. Don't let me miss it later when we start talking about some of the was it necessary is where we're going to go with this. Why was it necessary for him to be human? And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So don't let me don't let me let that lie. So because that's an interesting thought. Go ahead. Maybe it's not learn in the sense of learn, but learn in the sense of experience. Okay. To experience what it was. Mm-hmm. One of the books that uh, that I read in trying to prepare for this, and I have a, a li- I brought my. My stuff, my stack of books, so that if anybody wants to look where I got some of this information and, and a lot of my thoughts, these are not all my words. <laughs> Ultimately, it's God's words, but um, you're welcome to uh, come up and take a look at these. But one of the examples that, uh, that was given in one of the books I read said, you know, you can have a doctor uh, who is part of labor and delivery, right? And they can write a full textbook. They can have all the understanding of what it means to... to uh, give birth to a child, but if the doctor hasn't actually had a child and gone through childbirth, you're going to understand something in a different way. Now, I'm not necessarily saying this applies directly to God and his understanding because every example, when it comes to God and us, right, there, there is no example that, that perfectly illustrates and understanding, but I thought that was sort of interesting in my trying to understand and wrap my head around these things that that ultimately are are mind blowing, right? In our fallen nature and in our sinful state, even as we're being sanctified on this earth, we will never fully understand what this means. Because of that, though, hang on just a second. It doesn't mean that we should never stop to appreciate and marvel and glory in the fact that. It did happen, and it is happening. It is, a, it is a little bit mysterious, though. Like when when God heard the pain and suffering that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, He said He was going to go down there and see if it was bad. You know, you think like He's an all-knowing God, wouldn't He already know? But He actually goes down there so He can get a first-hand experience of it. Now, 
You're right. You're dealing with humanity <laughs> and the deity thing. I don't quite. I'll never wrap my head around that. But there is a sense that for him, and, and also for God to be our judge. Some people would say he's had to walk in our shoes, right? Mm-hmm. And he has, right? So. Yeah. In all of this, remember this when we get to the section of why. Why was it important that? that he be a human being, and, and why is that significance? Why wasn't it done a different way? Or maybe even ask the question, why couldn't it have been done a different way? And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, in the Bruce Ware book, I think uh, Ben's mentioned this one, uh, The Man Christ Jesus, he says, Surely the outworking of the two natures of Jesus is beyond our full comprehension. Just as with the doctrine of the Trinity in which we have in human life or experience no exact correspondence to God, who is one in essence and three in person, so too here. We are incapable of understanding completely how one person could have two full and integral natures, especially when one of those natures is uncreated, infinite, and fully divine, while the other one is created, finite, and fully human. How is it that Christ lived fully as a man while being also fully God, always has been and shall be ultimately a mystery? But this we know, the eternal Son of the Father, who is himself the form of God and equal to God, took on the form of our human nature in full human servitude. As a man, he accepted finite limitations to the expressions of his infinite divine qualities, while he also possessed those divine qualities in their infinite fullness." While the fullness of these truths is beyond our complete understanding, what we are granted eyes to see, even in small measure, elicits from us awe and wonder for the greatness of the eternal of what the eternal Son underwent as he became also fully man. All right, back to our scripture verses. Uh, somebody has uh, John four six. James Well was there in Jesus. Tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Anybody ever been tired before? Yeah? Jesus was tired. John nineteen twenty eight. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Matthew 4, 2. Uh, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then came hungry. Luke 23, 26. As they led him away, they seized one friend of the Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. The belief was that Jesus was so weak after his beatings that he was unable to carry the cross that the criminal was required to carry to Calvary that he was thirsty and he sat down by the well and wanted a drink, that he was in the desert, he hadn't eaten for 40 days, that he was hungry in his human nature. He experienced and understood what it meant to be weak, what it meant to be thirsty, what it meant to be hungry. All things that in our human flesh we experience and understand, he also has experienced that too. Um, I think it's interesting too that you know you think about, you know, was... Was Jesus truly human? And uh, one of the commentaries says he was so fully human that even those who lived and worked with him for 30 years, even those brothers who grew up in his own household did not realize that he was anything more than another very good human being. They apparently had no idea that he was God come in the flesh. Right? The scripture passage of his, he goes back to his hometown and they, 
What? Jesus? No, you must be talking about somebody else. Jesus is the carpenter's son, right? That, that he was so fully human, so to speak, that, that people didn't, weren't even aware that, you know, now and again you see one of these shows or these movies that Jesus did miracles at the dinner table when he was a little boy or he, you know, snapped his fingers and his chores were done. And, and I'm not sure, at least scripture doesn't state that that's how it worked. And based on these comments from the way that his family reacted and the way that his friends and the people he grew up with, that was not the Jesus when he was younger. That was later on in his ministry. Do you have a comment? Well, I was going to say that Mary knew because um, she told the people at the uh, Cana wedding, you know, go and do whatever he says. I mean, she knew um, if, you know, that he was God. Uh, so I, I'd say one person maybe mm-hmm. uh, knew that he was God. She had a little bit of a jump start on everybody else because the angel appeared to her (laughs) and gave her, what's that? And Joseph as well. Yep, absolutely. Joseph knew as well. So it wasn't that nobody knew, but it was that in general, if you look at the people that he interacted with and those people that were around him, that was not like what they were thinking all through at least the implication in my understanding and reading is that's not what they were looking at the first 30 years of his life. I mean, it wasn't for a lot of those people, it wasn't until afterwards that they ended up believing um, after his death, uh, burial, and resurrection that, they, that their eyes were opened and they were able to see that this was not just a man, this was and is God and what that means and, and what some of the implications are. So, set the groundwork in several of these things, emotionally, the Bible talks about that Jesus wept, that he was troubled. Now, I don't know if his trouble was quite the same as what I view trouble as being, but the Bible talks about him being troubled, that it talks about him being sad, that it talks about him in the garden praying to God, that, he, that he's wrestling with obedience in the garden with his Father. And again, we're not going to go down the the path of what that means, but he was like us in what we experience and what we understand. Yes, sir? It's also often visibly annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exasperated. Visibly annoyed. How long am I going to be? <laughs> so it's okay for me to be annoyed and I cannot sin, right? <laughs> we're going to get to that in a minute. Yeah. There were times when when he may have come across that way. Now, how that works with what we're going to talk about next is a different story, right? There is obviously a distinct difference between our understanding and relating to being human and understanding our humanity and what Jesus experienced in his life on the earth, right? So if you flip the page, (laughs) we're going to talk next about the fact that even in, in this human state, even as he understood what it was to grow, what it was to learn, what it was to thirst and hunger, what it was to live in the context of a family. He had a father and mother that he was obedient to. He had siblings, the Bible says. He interacted with people. He had a job. His father was a carpenter. So more than likely, he helped his dad in the shop. So in and amongst all of this, the obviously biggest difference between him and us is that he was without sin. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like next because in order to understand his humanity, it's super important to understand that he was without sin and what the implications of that are and what that 
means. So, <clears throat> um, the New Testament clearly affirms that Jesus was fully human just as we are, but it also affirms that Jesus was different in one important respect. He was without sin. Uh, there are several uh, passages there. Uh, we'll not read them all. I will read a few of them uh, along the way. Um, to give us some context for what we're going to talk about, and then we're going to talk about what it means that Jesus was truly man, yet without sin. Um, Jesus brings it up several times. In, God, in John's Gospel, John eight forty six. Jesus says, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? John 8 also says, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. John 15 says, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and remain in his love. Even the people around him, right? Jesus was brought before Pilate. Pilate has a conversation with Jesus, and what does he go back and tell the people? I don't find any fault with this man. Now, obviously, he wasn't necessarily looking at the entirety of Jesus' life, but with the charges that were brought against him, Pilate says, I can't find that he's done anything wrong. And then Paul would go on and pick up these same ideas in his letters. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says, The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, or defect. First Peter 2 goes on to say, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found on his mouth. An interesting thought. We've all heard it before, right? It's not something new that I'm sharing with you this morning. But think about what that means and what the implications are on, the fa- on this. Not only did he not sin in his actions, he never sinned in his words, anything he said. His motives were always right. And his attitude was always correct. That doesn't mean he didn't struggle. The Bible says that he does. doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. The Bible says he was. But definitely puts him in a category separate from where we are, right? We can make it look pretty good on the outside sometimes. <laughs> but now imagine if it starts what's in here, then it's like we're all lost, right? <laughs> we are anyway, but by God's grace. But Jesus, always perfect, always obedient to the Father. What does that mean that he was always obedient to his parents? Imagine what that was like to grow up for Mary and Joseph, to have a child that never talked back, that was always obedient, right? I mean, if you, I don't know, things to think about when you have a little free time in, in this, nobody has free time in December, but, <laughs> but think about what that means and what that has, was without sin. Like, Satan only had to get Christ to trip up once, one time, and it's all, all over. And yet, he was perfect every time and was without sin. 
comments, questions. There's a lot of places to go with sin. <laughs> sin tr- go ahead. Well, um, Jesus talked in parables. And, uh, he said, destroy the uh, and I'll raise it up in, uh, in three days. Um, you know, it's totally misunderstood. So, uh, does that mean that if we say something in a cryptic way that's misunderstood, that's not, it's not a lie? Well, <laughs> what do you think? Any thoughts? <laughs> I'll throw it back to the audience. I can share a little bit. Question is, is that if he told the truth all the time, he was speaking the truth, they misunderstood what he said, maybe? Like when he said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go up at this time, and then he goes up right after. That, that one, to me, more so than this temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, these are called equivocations. The, the Jesuits were notorious for using equivocation, and they used sort of the same sort of logic, you know, like... Um, the famous case where uh, <coughs> some guy was escaping the law in the river in, in the Nile and there was, there was a Jesuit priest there and the Jesuit priest saw people float by and the people chasing him came by and they, they asked if he'd saw him and said, well, you're, you're near them, right? You, 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 he's not telling the truth, but he's equivocating, right? Yeah, so that's... But Jesus isn't equivocating when he says that. He's, he's speaking in a parable. I mean, he often spoke very opaquely. But is not the same as being a critical. Yes. I guess the context of this class has been talking a lot about sexuality and how we view and so it I guess it's interesting to me is like we don't see a specific case where this happened and Jesus handled it just right. We know that he interacted with a prostitute and gave. But as far as like sexual temptation, that's not really something that we see addressed. But we're told that he did, you know, all things perfectly. And just in the context of what we've been talking about, it's not something we go see. Look at how he did that exactly. Yeah, it's not. We do have verses uh, like Hebrews four fifteen. Uh, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So although, yes, correct, there, aren't, there is not, as, as I understand it, a specific example of a sexual temptation, this verse in Hebrews seems to suggest that, that along the way, there was a very real possibility that that, that was a temptation, and again, in our understanding, like that book was talking about earlier, as we think about these things in our finite human sinful minds, we'll never fully understand, like, well, how'd that work? <laughs> and for whatever reason, God chose not to reveal that in here to us, um, and I think that could be significant as well. In, in talking about, and I know you have a question, I'll, I'll get, hang on just a second. It's interesting too, because in some of the stuff that I read, it talks about how uh, uh, God being created in the garden, male and female, man and woman, he created them, and that God's very good was the two of them together, yet Christ lived as a single man on the earth. And he's our perfect representative. He is our sinless obedience, sacrifice, although I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit now, but but... 
Yet even in his single state, he still presented a correct uh, reflection of who God is and and in in representing God to us or showing us who God is. So, but yes, it, it does not specifically. Question or comment? Uh, I think it's interesting seeing Jesus as a fulfillment of the law because he didn't seem to be under the law. You see, when he condemns the Pharisees, when he clears the temple, <coughs> he does things under authority, which ultimately leads to him uh, judging the earth in Revelation. But when we see him not sinning, it's due to his nature as God. And some of the things we see him do, if we did them in our sin, would not necessarily have the same impact or It is interesting, and you all can grab books and read. There's so much stuff that you can read about this, reading about things like, well, of course he didn't sin, he's God, right? It's like, oh, temptation, pull out the God card, pull out the, you know, what it, however you want to call it or something. But, but something in here almost makes it sound like that that's not quite how it worked. And again, it's this putting together of the human nature and the divine nature that, that we try to understand and grasp parts of. But this side of heaven, we will never have. And it'll be nice for the rest of eternity that we get to search that out and seek understanding for what it means because he will be human for he is now that there's this joining that this gets carried forward go ahead kind of springing off of what Lucas says about how he's not under the law but did some just throughout many passages in the New Testament he is seems like he's constantly being accused of breaking the law of of sinning you broke the Sabbath you did this, you know, on the wrong day. Or you need to tell your followers to stop calling you the Messiah. You know, you know that's, that's a sin. Or you were filled with the devil. You know, right now. So, that's just incredible. And then, um, I, th- I think it's fascinating that he decides to go through with baptism. Because he associate that with something that a simple person used to do. It is an interesting thought. It was also in that baptism that, that the, the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God, it says, came down and rested upon him, right? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And maybe part of the sinless, not part of, but maybe the Holy Spirit inside of him, just like the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, of course, that doesn't make us sinless, but through the power of the Spirit inside his life, the outpouring of that Spirit and that truth in his humanity allowed him in his uh, resistance of sin and, and temptation. There's so many places to go on this sin thing that reading about, you know, well, was Jesus even able to sin? Could, could he have sinned if he had wanted to? What, what does that mean? What the implications are? And I'm just going to throw that one out there and then we're going to go this other way. But, but there's some really interesting stuff about there as, as far as then if he was unable to sin, does that make his temptation less or more than what it would be for us? And, and Stephen Wellam says, we can say that Jesus' temptations were not only genuine, They were more real than we could ever imagine or experience since he never yielded to temptation as we do. 
he unswervingly and joyfully obeyed his father's will. Right? Because once you give in to temptation, like, then sort of the hard part's over. <laughs> Go ahead. So, I mean, just follow up on the thought of sexuality. It's also said that Jesus didn't have any offspring. I mean, and that's, he didn't get married, but he also didn't have any offspring. So, we know that he didn't fail in that way. Or at least that's the remain pure. Is this a data point? Yeah. Yeah. H.R. McIntosh says, no miracle of Christ equals the miracle of his sinless life. To be holy in all thought and feeling, never to fail in duty to others, never to transgress the law of perfect love to God or man, never to exceed or to come short. This is a condition outstripping the power of imagination and almost of belief. So then my question to you is, based on what we've talked about or what you know, why was Jesus' full humanity necessary? Why did it be that the creator and sustainer of the universe had to be born of a virgin, Mary, grow and learn, increase in wisdom and stature? Why did he have to go through these things? Why was his humanity necessary? Well, after all that, but in Matthew... um, John 8:28, right before it says, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Um, and then in Mark 15:39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So he, Jesus is demonstrating something you know, in his submission to God's submission to dying on the cross, the way he died, he's demonstrating his divinity. You know, acting it out is more than just saying. So that's part of the answer. Okay. And we need that. We needed him to do that. Okay. When you look at uh, post-resurrection and you hear them saying, be more like Christ. You ever think he'd be more like Christ? If he wasn't a man, how could we have done that? How could we strive for that? So he sets, he sets an example right. for us to follow. Exactly. Which is important because prior to him, our example was Adam, right? In the garden, that, that's our example. But we know how that story turned out. And so, uh, what a wonderful opportunity then that he is our um, is our example. Uh, What's important too from from him being a priest that he's he, he walked in our shoes, right? So he knows what it's like to be tempted, right? He in Hebrews. It's really important. That You know, when I'm tempted with sin, then I know that Jesus has been in the same place I have. And then on the flip side, on Judgment Day, I can't use the excuse, well, you don't know what it's like, Jesus. You don't know what it's like to be like me. I mean, so he, you know, he did walk in my shoes. He knows what it's like. I don't, I, that excuse on Judgment Day is now gone. Right? Muhammad can't say that. You know, all the other various religions can't say that. But, but our God was someone who did do walk in our shoes. 
think as a part of answering the question two quotes ago of your external reading, uh, the unswervingly and joyfully doesn't ring true with Jesus in the garden at all. He wasn't unswerving and joyful and ungodly, and I think that's part of the answer. And Hebrews, he knows what it's like to be fully human, and it wasn't unswerving, yes. and it wasn't joyful, and there's hope in that for us. That perfect example is it's okay to not say, I have to unswervingly and joyfully <laughs> No. He felt all those emotions. He dealt with all those things, and yet in that, he was still perfect, and I think that that is why he was example, and that's what Hebrews is talking about. I think that's just an important way. That's what's sticking in my car. Like, no, he wasn't unsperming in the garden. He wasn't joyful in the garden. And yet, he said, oh, my will is I'm glad you mentioned. Thank you for mentioning that because even as I was up here reading it, it was like, well, there were times. <laughs> so, thanks for keeping me. There's several hands up. Yes. I think that part of it, I'm kind of a simple thinker, but part of it to me is the simple fact of that moment of first attack that by Adam's disobedience something happened by Jesus' obedience. Mm. He says he learned obedience, and I think if he hadn't gone. It wasn't in some way outside the Godhead where there are equal people. He had, to, he had to be in a condition where he could obey and thus counteract the disobedience of Adam. The scripture that you're referring, uh, Romans 5.18 says, Consequently, just as the result of one tras- trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Yes? I think it's also interesting in John's revelation of the judgment, uh, Jesus is the only one in heaven that is found worthy of enacting that judgment. Of all the perfect angels and we don't know, but even amongst the Trinity, he's the one that is found worthy to, uh, in the end, judge humanity because he was the Lamb of the Plain. He was among humanity. He took that responsibility. Let's come back here and then we'll get back to your... And that's okay. I thought somebody had a hand raised over here. I just... Somebody has somebody said... Has, uh, I don't want to get into it, but like... Jesus could have spilled a drop of blood and healed all of humanity, you know, with that. With that just, you know, because that's how powerful it is. Or, you know, God could have snapped his fingers and forgiven him. It's just amazing, you know, to me that he basically chose probably the worst form of death mm-hmm. at that time, you know, to, to condemn and you know, give us an example and a way you know, to follow. Um, Hebrews uh, picks up on that. It says, For this reason he had to be, like, be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because if Jesus had not been a man, then he could not have died in our place. Accepting the penalty for the sin that you and I have done or continue to do 
and allowing the opportunity for us to be forgiven. So I don't want to forget to get back to you in the front. So go ahead. Well, why are we assuming that Jesus had to quote, experience, or God had to experience anything in, in, in order to have experienced it? Yeah. Like, it? It doesn't seem to me that we're giving enough credit to God's godness to assume that he he didn't know what it was like to feel temptation when he didn't. So, so yes, in, in this class, so we're focusing primarily on the humanity of it. It doesn't at all in seeking to diminish his divinity and his God status. And I almost think that it was more, that his humanity was more along the way of what that says and does for me than what it says and does for God. That, that he had to be to be the sacrifice. He had to be to, to be obedience and to show that obedience is, is possible. Adam showed that, seems to make it show that it wasn't. Jesus shows that obedience is possible. And in fact, I'm going to live it out to show you. And now that I've showed you that it is possible through the indwelling and the power of the Holy Spirit, through God who works in me, Jesus says, then he says, I'm the example Look to me, we, we should seek to be more Christ-like. We should seek to follow in his footsteps somebody who sets the pattern and the example for us, not so much that he needed to experience it himself to understand because he's God and it wasn't for his benefit. I would say that his full humanity was necessary for our benefit, not his. And I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but in giving idea to, to this class, um, he's supposed to be our pattern and example in life, right? Second Corinthians three says, and we three eighteen says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. First Peter two twenty one says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Um, I think it also shows his, uh, a pattern for what our redeemed bodies are going to look like, right? Jesus would appear later on to his disciples after his burial, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He would appear to many people. Hey, Thomas, come here. Look, look. There's, you, you can put your fingers in the holes of my hands and your hand in my side that, that his body, even in his resurrection, he still has a physical body. Now, it's not like our body, but it, the Bible says that someday when he appears, we will be taken to be with him and we will be like him in our humanity. We're, we're not going to... Jesus doesn't cease to be man now that he's back up in heaven with God the Father. He continues in his humanness and in his humanity in this joining of, of deity and humanity. It goes on to talk about sympathizing as a high priest to, to understand what we've gone through someday at the judgment, like it was pointed out, men are going to be without excuse and part of it is going to be standing before Jesus. Um, <clears throat> we'll also talk, and we're not going to talk this morning about Jesus. Well, I covered it a little bit here that Jesus will be a man forever. I like the story in the New Testament where, where his disciples are out fishing. Jesus is sitting on the seashore and it's like, hey, come have breakfast with me. Like invites them back in. 
And then in, in his infinite wisdom, what does he serve him? He serves him fish and bread, right? <laughs> sort of this reminder of where they've been and, and what they've been through back with the feeding of the 5,000 and, and the, the breaking of the bread and all. He didn't cease to be human after he, after he died. He will be a man forever. Um, I'm going to wrap up with a, uh, a comment out of uh, Paul Tripp's Come Let Us Adore Him, a, an Advent devotional that, that my wife likes and that we have sitting on our, our table uh, for this morning. It says, In his infinite wisdom, God knew that the only thing that could rescue us from ourselves and repair the horrendous damage that sin had done to the world was not a thing at all. It was a person, his son, the Lord Jesus. God's response to our rebellion was to give us himself. He is the great redeeming, transforming gift. He is the rescue. He is the forgiveness. He is the restoration. He is the life, hope, peace, and security. There is no salvation apart from him. There is no deliverance from the pressure, presence, and power of sin apart from him. There is no restored relationship with God apart from him. There is no new heaven and new earth apart from him. There is no defeat of death apart from him. There simply is no such thing as redeeming grace and all that it means apart from the willingness of God to give us himself in the person of the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God given to sinners who cannot free themselves from the death grip of sin. Look into that manger at the baby boy and see grace. The Christmas story is about grace in its most shocking and surprising form. The Lord of Lords, one of the incalculable One of the incalculable glory humbles himself and takes on human flesh and blood. The creator, in a way that boggles the mind, becomes the created. The one who made a perfect world now exposes himself to a world stained with imperfections. The judge of all things places himself under judgment. The one who deserves worship becomes the lamb of sacrifice. The one who deserves everyone's love subjects himself to being despised and rejected. The one who owns all things lives with no place to call home and no place to rest his weary head. This season, in the midst of all the celebrations and gift-giving, be careful to remember that at the center of what we celebrate is one game-changing, life-altering, hope-giving reality. Grace is a person, and his name is Jesus. Thank you, Lord, so much for the opportunity to, to gather together on this Sunday morning to, to get into the Word, to consider you and who you are and what you've done. Thank you so much that in your perfect plan you conceived of before the creation and before the foundations of the earth were laid, Lord. You had a plan that you put into place, Lord. And it's a perfect plan, a plan that could be no other way. We thank you, Lord, that we are the recipients and that we are the benefits of your hope, of your glory, of your sacrifice, of your humbling yourself. Help us to be imitators. Help us to look to you as our example. Help us to consider again this Christmas season the glory of your humanity, the baby laying in a manger. In your name we pray, amen.